Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. Haim, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Not too bad. Um, I think we're chatting just off air about the um, fires. It's nice and hot in my home office right now. It's a cool 30 degrees um, and I can't have the aircon on for for sound purposes, but um, I'm good nonetheless. I'm excited to be chatting. I know the CEO of, of Go Markets who, who actually financed this podcast was very excited to have you on the show. Um, I watched your doco last night which was very, very interesting. For the audience who isn't aware, I guess the main thing that we should should say is that you are a, I guess you could say, famed high-frequency trading leader, SEC whistleblower who's worked at many organizations, including Hull, Goldman, and UBS, and of course, creating your own businesses in trading machine and funds such as Hyperion Decimus and Decimus Capital as well. Uh, I guess I was curious, looking at your earlier life, uh, you're the son of a physicist, an award-winning physicist, that is, um, and I know reading some of the stories and some of the interviews that you did, you basically grew up around the rocket scientists and particle physicists who worked at Fermilab. Uh, what's your sort of earliest memory of your childhood? Um, well, I'm not sure I can put them in, in complete order, <laughs> but I, I did grow up um, on, in, on particle physics labs. Um, uh, so I was one of those Fermi kids. Uh, Fermi, Fermi Lab is just amazing. It's a you know, huge uh, ring with the, with the, the, the collider, uh, you know, just over miles. And um, there's just a single skyscraper. And that, that skyscraper uh, has a big... Um, fountain in front of it with all the flags from all the different countries that are on these collaborations. So, you know, it really was, uh, even, you know, in the seventies, this was complete Star Trek environment to like, uh, to live on. And, uh, you know, my, my father, um, was instrumental in the, the discovery of the cork. Uh, he did that work when he was at uh, the Stanford linear accelerator. And, um, I just went up to MIT and saw him speak mm -hmm. and uh, he, you know, he talked about me, you know, <laughs> and uh, what I was like, like, you know, he's reflecting on it all and he's talking about me, uh, you know, as part of that history. So it was really kind of amazing just to be in, in the center of all that. Uh, incidentally, it was kind of funny when I was up there, 
uh, I was standing in line and the guy behind me says, Hey, I've read your book. <laughs> I'm like, I cannot get away from high frequency trading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that must be that must be a weird thing about being someone well known in this space. You know, I've spoken to many people who are you could say influencers in their own fields and it must be weird sometimes to just be recognized so regularly. But it's funny that you mentioned that your dad um, spoke spoke about yourself. I guess I was curious as well, like growing up with their because, you know, you seem to have quite a, a conscientious uh, openness, creative sort of mind that is, I guess, required of, of being someone who's intrigued in maths and development and, and getting into this quant space. Were there lessons that you sort of learned from your parents growing up that you might have seen, you know, directly or indirectly at all? Well, I mean, one of the things is, uh, you know, I, I rebelled really heavily against my, my father who wanted me to be an academic, but, uh, but mm. being immersed in that culture, I guess, rubbed off. So my father really rejected uh, uh, Wall Street uh, finance. He thought people who were, who were smart, who were going to pursue mm. that kind of path were, were just not using their capabilities for, you know, for the true betterment of, of like civilization, let's say, right? Mm. You know, if you're so, if you're part of the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, you know, if you're <laughs> that, that good, why go to Wall Street? So when I was at Hull Trading, uh, I was in the financial engineering department, and it was about 35 people. You could say about a quarter of them had actually worked for my father or knew him. And I was like, this is too close to home. So, uh, you know, but the, 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 what my father did that is very similar to what I did over most of my career, uh, I asked him once, I said, what are you good at? You know, he builds these accelerators. He manages these large teams. He has to know uh, computing. He has to know hardware. He has to know the mathematics of, the, of physics. And he says statistics. Completely. I was completely sh shocked. I was like, oh. Uh, and that's how it is in our field. To master building uh, you know, a high-frequency trading desk, you have to be competent at so many different disciplines and to, to knit them together. And you have to deal with a lot of different technical people from different backgrounds to get them mm. all to coordinate. And it's actually very similar to how uh, particle physics is done. Um, actually, somebody who works with me, uh, Mark Shaw, uh, he actually worked, uh, he works as, with my firm, Decimus. I've worked with him since 1996. Uh, he's a PhD in, in particle physics. He worked from, with my father before I ever met him. He worked with my father on the uh, antimatter collider in, in, in Japan. <laughs> now, he with, now he works with me. So I guess the, uh, it is wow. not far from the tree is what I guess the general message. It's all come full circle. Well, that, that's what I was thinking when you said that. It sort of sounds like your dad views it and uh, what you should do in life in a very altruistic manner. And I guess I was curious, how did you explain it to him? How do you explain it to others as to why you pursued this area? And, and it sort of sounds like what you both get from life is solving problems and problems in a scientific way. And I, I guess there are a lot of parallels, right, in, in the work that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, right now, I mean, the funny thing is, 
when I went whistleblower and started turning in everything. And when I had, when it, it was really, it was kind of amazing. So whole trading where I started, I, I remember, you know, after I went whistleblower, I was hanging out with one of the, my ex whole trading colleagues. Uh, we were actually leaving Blair Hall's house and it was in uh, Chicago and, and he, he was walking down the street with me and he says, Blair didn't really, uh, train us well for the, for the real world. And what he, what he <laughs> meant was that we worked at one of the, only really clean high frequency trading firms in the business mm. and, you know and a matter of fact we only you know we would call it a an electronic market maker we wouldn't even call it hft so um since then uh you know i've been involved in at least 15 whistleblower investigations now maybe i'm coming up at 10 high frequency trading uh, cases with regard to litigation and that basically has given me an inside track on you know m- many of the firms in the space and I'm completely astonished at how the public you know representation of how these firms operate differs so much from how they actually operate so I agree with my friend <laughs> you, you know <laughs> Um, and, uh, the funny thing is, you know, when I'm like having this uh, epiphany that, that this business has basically evolved to the point where, you know, you have high frequency trading firms run by ex SEC lawyers. I mean, that gives you a clue about what the focus is. Yeah. I think back to your point about Blair Hull and, and your time when you started there, like for those who weren't aware, it was quite a... If you watch that documentary you're in, it's 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 it was a new idea. Like back then, everything was done on paper, and it, I think the way that high frequency traded started was to benefit the consumer. It was to it was to make things better. I mean, even companies like um, IB Interactive Brokers. He was in. He was the founder. Was talking in that doco as well about how he never painted anything that he did because he didn't believe in it. He wanted people to benefit from the developments and I can see how the the industry originally began like that and and then I think the you know you going forth with that that whistleblower case I can sort of see how that I guess maybe that altruistic notions that came from your dad as a kid might have sort of pervaded there you you would have seen this problem and gone no nah, this isn't right and I need to do something about it yeah, you know, and I I want to clarify something that that because you know I, the the way I get portrayed as being, uh, you know, just the way you said, but but um, the funny thing is, you know, you don't make it as far as I did in the business if you're like that, you know. So I I always thought myself as more of a pragmatist. Um, so it was kind of I, I'm just gonna you know, so I guess I'm gonna shoot myself down a bit, but um, when when I decided to turn this stuff in there's a few things to kind of just know about the thought process one is i was just so irritated with the stock market you know we're option traders and i'm like these stock guys they built all these back doors now i have to go learn it all it's such a pain in the butt like you know i was just so irritated that i have to go learn this scheme and i did and i spent a year on it but the whole time i'm just you know, bitching about it um, to everybody around me. Like, 
how can they just do this and get away? I'm, I'm, and by the time, you know, I thought to myself, by the time I get good at this, the regulators will figure it out. You know, and I didn't, I didn't understand that I was like in an ecosystem of selective disclosure, which is, which is fraud. You know I mean? I didn't see it like that at that time. Mm. Uh, it was, it wasn't until I started working with regulators that I realized, you know, that, that we had actually moved into securities fraud, but the, and the people in this ecosystem, you know, literally uh, until the directors got fined, they were all like totally confused about what I turned in. They're like, uh, uh, oh, you didn't, you know, I knew about the order types. <laughs> you know, the, like, you know, like, like they literally couldn't even see that, yeah. that this, this was a massive collusion and selective disclosure and, and truly rigged game that was mm. actually, you know, it's it's right now the focus of uh, litigation in the city of Providence case. This is a massive class action lawsuit against all the exchanges. If I had understood that view, I don't think I would have sat around for a year being like, nah, I got to learn all this. And, <laughs> you know? So, you know, it wasn't, it, I didn't really have the kind of view that you're saying until I got out into the other world, the rest of the world. And then once you get a little bit of distance, you're like, oh my God. And um, there's another story that still kind of just gets under my skin. Uh, I've been a whistleblower for uh, for a year, and I'm on the front page of the journal. And I have a friend from Goldman who writes me, and he says, "Hey, just saw you on the you know in the journal. Uh, I got divorced. I'm driving around. I'm out of the industry. I'm driving around on a motorcycle." And he says, "What you did by turning in direct edge." really interesting because you and I had a similar project with your ex. And I thought of it, I was like, wow, actually, um, you know, we basically got an unfair advantage on your ex. And I had not even recognized that I had done something so similar to what I had turned in. Um, and, and, and I've been a whistleblower for a year. I'm like, how could I not have recognized that? You know, he was far enough from the industry that it was just like, oh, yeah, hi, I'm and I did that on Urex. And then he turned it in on Direct Edge. When I turned it into, on Direct Edge, I, I had not even considered that I had done anything, you know, similar. So I, I think what basically happens is when you're in this business is there's just so much pressure to get an edge and any advantage you get, you, you just don't even think of them ethically. And, wow. and so it's almost like you've got blinders on. Yeah. And if I have blinders on, that basically explains why the other people in our business couldn't even understand that they had crossed the line, you know, a decade ago. Wow. So just cognitive dissonance hits you so hard. And I think it sounds like if trading machines hadn't closed you may not have realized yeah, that's, you what hadn't... yeah that's what i'm saying so like you know like just because i got i opened my eyes you know the process i had to defend myself against the industry you know i mean i i was i got every you know it was, the, it was one of the most extensive investigations in the u.s 
in the SEC's history. Uh, SEC actually told my lawyer that it was the most sophisticated investigation they ever did. Wow. So, you know, it's just me and I'm in the center. I'm, I'm public, but nobody knows what's going on because SEC is not making any public statements. Meanwhile, they're spending, you know, three, four years thoroughly investigating all the exchanges and I have to defend myself, you know. Um, mm. And that process brought me to this kind of realization. And I guess what about about really what had happened in this industry and uh but it was still not generally accepted until the um, SEC actually did the settlement against DirectEdge, which was the largest fine in U.S. history against an exchange, $14 million. It's not much, but it was a big deal that it was the largest. Mm. Uh, and, and they were uh, fined for not disclosing their order types to the public. Um, mm. Basically... And uh, I'll tell you what happened, which was, was kind of great about this. I had all these people in my industry being like, I know how Hide Not Slide works. You know, what's wrong with you, right? And the SEC releases the order, and they're like, only two high-frequency trading firms got complete information on how Hide Not Slide worked, and they basically designed it. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's then amazing. I got all this grief from everyone else, and then they're like, What? There was other stuff I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, I've been saying that for like four years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, there's going to be people listening to this that will have no context. I, I thought I'd give them like a little, mm-hmm. a little buffer on this. So you had a firm trading machines. This is after you'd worked at Hull, Goldman, uh, UBS. You'd gone out on your own. This is an options high frequency trading firm. Uh, generally profitable until there came a time where you started to realize that there was something deeply wrong. A year later, after some digging, you realized that on a platform called DirectEdge, there was an order type called hide, not slide, which is what you referenced before that, you know, two of, I don't know how many high-frequency trading firms there would have been on that exchange knew about this, this order type. Now, for the people who are oblivious as to what that even means, explain a limit order versus a hide, not slide order, which is what you were using in your business. Okay. Well, it's a very, very sophisticated abuse, actually, when you try to explain it to the public. I mean, I think the reason why it did not – even though, I mean, it got a lot of attention, right? I was on the front page of the journal, Wall Street Journal twice, but people still really didn't know what I turned in, and I think they – Generally, people still don't know, but they're happy I did it. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know, but it's it's good. What he did was yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, it's very funny because I, you know, I, I was I got so confused because I I thought people wanted to know the details, and I and and as this whole thing experience progressed, I realized that they just wanted to know that somebody in the ecosystem was looking out for the for the public i guess you know it was uh it was i'm not talking about even insiders like like the the details are it's really geek them when you talk about the details so i'm so i don't expect everyone on this um podcast to to understand what i say here but i but i think the takeaway is you're supposed to understand how ridiculously in the weeds this abuse i turned in is um Mm. so here here's how it works in the united states there is a regulation called REGNMS, which stands for Regulation National Market System. And it is the 
legal structure that governs how uh, markets connect and how a best bid and a best offer are basically constructed when you have multiple markets. So we have something like 13, you know, it goes up or down, at least 13 stock exchanges. I don't even know if that's the count, it could be 12, 14, whatever, but um, you have that many uh, exchanges roughly, and they all need to honor each other's prices according to this regulation. So if I send an order to, you know, lift an offer for $10 on one exchange, but another exchange has an offer price of $9.99, this regulation is supposed to protect the customer so that they get the better price of $9.99, right? Uh Now that regulation back in 2005-2006 the high frequency traders basically decided that that regulation was going to kill their business they were they had run they were running high frequency trading strategies from the early 2000s and they were just totally worried that that the that the strategies that they ran I'm not naming names, but you were talking about like the big guys who became extremely successful in this space. We're very, very worried that this regulation would put their little fledgling firms out of business. Mm. And um, there, and let me explain to you why. Uh, because high frequency traders, what they want to do is they want to be at the top of the order book queue. They want to be the best price in the market. And that basically means that when it is possible to put a bid price at $10 without trading. We're talking about being top in the queue. They don't want to take the a, a $10. They, want to, they don't want to lift the offer. They want to be at the best bid when the best bid is newly established, right? Really at the front of the line. Hmm. The, pr- the problem is that ReganMS stops them from being at the front of the line. Yeah. It, it, take, was, it, it takes away that sort of time arbitrage. Yes, at least the law did. But we, the, the, the story here is that technology is not law, and high-frequency traders were very, very smart, and they were able to influence the way the technology in the U.S. marketplace evolved mm. so that it basically circumvented this law. Uh, and uh, you know, we'll get to that as kind of the punchline and giving you a head, is they circumvented the law by creating new order types, order types that would basically bypass the regulations so you know why why aren't they able to set the the best price with ReganMS? the problem is that each exchange is supposed to know what all the other exchanges um, prices are right but when the market's moving one exchange will look at the other exchanges and still see the old stale price and what they'll do is they'll say hey hft you're not allowed to post at $10 because the other exchange has a price at $10 and you need to go there. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to do what's called locking a market. Locking a market is when my buy price equals the sell price of, an, of, of another exchange. Uh, I can't create a, a buy price on one exchange or bid on one pr- exchange that has an equal price to an offer on another exchange. It's called Rule 610 in the band and lock markets. So they hated this rule because what HFT would say is, hey, I know the $10 offer on the away exchange isn't there. It's a phantom. 
let me be front of the line. (laughs) (laughs) Right? The exchange is like, we can't let you be the front of the line because we see the $10 offer. We agree with you. It's probably a phantom price. But this regulation is not going to, you know, we're going to get in trouble if we let you post at $10. So if you understand what I just said, which might be hard to follow, what what it basically says is that this regulation, Rule 610 in the ban of a lot markets, basically made it so the HFT strategies couldn't exploit their speed advantage to get to the top of the queue. They just couldn't. It, it basically did destroy their strategies. So why, when regu- regulation NMS was rolled out, why did high-frequency trading volume pop from 30 to 40% of the U.S. market to 70% of the U.S. market? And the answer is these smart guys basically circumvented Reg NMS before it even got implemented in the U.S. Wow. And that that was from these order types. Yep. So let's talk about how the order types work. Hide, not slide. Well, that is literally what the order type does. What exchanges used to do in this uh, situation where you were not allowed to post at $10 because the you know, I can't post as $10 on NASDAQ if the New York Stock Exchange is offering at $10, right? So the first thing they tried to do was do what's called slide. And slide would mean that they would tick you back. They would tick back your price to $9.99 so you didn't lock the away market, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're a high-frequency trader who wants to post at 10 are you happy that they slide you back to $9.99? I guess so. No, you're not, okay? Because you want to be at the best price in the market at the top of the queue, and if they slide you back to $9.99, you're at the back of the queue. Oh, right, 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 okay. You're way back in the line, right? Yeah. So hide, not slide, said, hey, and this is, uh, we use the term regulatory arbitrage. Regulatory arbitrage, in my definition, is basically finding loopholes in the law that can be exploited to your advantage, okay? Mm -hmm. So what Hide Not Slide did was exploit a regulatory arbitrage. What they did was they they basically decided, when the order comes in, I won't slide. Remember, it's Hide Not Slide. I will Mm -hmm. not slide it to $9.99. I'm gonna post it at $10, but I'm gonna make it a hidden order. Hidden orders were allowed to be posted at $10 because they did not create a visible locked market. Wow. Okay. Now, that's kind of cool. They expl- the, the hidden orders are not prevented from being posted at $10 according to uh, Reagan MS and the mm. ban of locked markets. So that's what they did, but that wasn't enough. What I just explained to you is actually what Price to Comply did on NASDAQ. The problem was when you were allowed to finally post the price. And when is that? When, the when uh, let's say, Directors does not see, uh, you know, sees that, um, that NASDAQ's no longer at 10, let's say, or the NYSE's no longer at 10. What they would do is they would replace the hidden order with a new price at $10. So what I'm trying to say is that hide not slide 
was kind of like the reservation at a restaurant that allows you to skip the line and get in, mm-hmm. get a table before everyone else. HFTs would send the high not slide orders and they would sit around hidden so no one could see them. And then when the rules allowed these guys to be placed at the top of the queue, it would light up and place them at the top of the queue. And that's how it operated. Would those, those orders, could you see them on the history of the order book? You would see them displayed a tick back. So you would see a price of nine ninety nine. And I tell you, when I finally went public with my allegations, I can't tell you how many people who study tick data from academic, you know, from universities, from startup firms, basically anybody who studies tick data who's not HFT, you know, quite a number of them called me up and said, you just explained to me the weird stuff I've been seeing in tick data (laughs) that I never could understand because the prices are not actually at ten dollars in the tick data they're at 9.99 but those are actually phantoms they you understand so yeah it's like it's like fake data yeah well they, they, they every single nuance of this whole story the exchanges will have an explanation for every single thing they did for that thing they'll say well it's okay if we posted uh, a price at 9.99 when there was a hidden order at 10 because the customer who traded against that price would would get a penny better. They're not mm. going to complain. And we don't want to have no order shown because then nobody will, people will see that there's no, they, they won't see the liquidity. Mm. And our customer wanted to display, he just couldn't display because the ban on high, high market. So we have a hidden state, but he doesn't really want to have a hidden order there. So it's, it's you know, it's completely ethical and reasonable to, to show the order at $9.99. I will agree with that. So why is high not slide so bad? Well, that wasn't, the the story is that it's not so bad, but these crafty guys thought, hey, nobody's really watching what we're doing with these prototypes. (laughs) So why don't we throw in some perks? Why don't we make sure that not only did these orders jump ahead of everybody, but we'll make sure that other orders get put behind everybody. So what Hide Not Slide did, and I literally could not get this communicated to the public, is it wasn't that Hide Not Slide was so bad. It's a very, very sophisticated thing. It's that it was undocumented, and there were secret features where they reshuffled the queue so that HFTs in general got trades that non-HFTs didn't. Mm. So it's almost like they have the capabilities to corner or manipulate a market with order types. Uh, if you go, even to this day, if you go look at these uh, order types, I can see all the HFTs come in. You can see that they're ahead of everybody. You can see patterns where they all cancel in a herd in one second. Like the order type imprint in the in the order book, right? It's still to this day, even though I, I turned it. So they got in trouble for not disclosing how the order types worked in full to the SEC. They never, you realize they never filed a regulatory filing getting hide not slide approved with the SEC. They never just, wow. that's actually what they got fined for. 
They rolled this thing out. They told the, a few guys about it uh, in detail. They they kind of let the HFT community know through like I think there was like one press release in one like magazine, but there was no documentation on how the damn thing operated. You had to talk to them, and they basically told some people how it worked and didn't tell others. That's how they rolled it out, and they never got SEC approval for it. Wow. So the industry, the high-frequency trading industry went from arbitraging time to like using that speed to arbitrage time in the market to now using that speed to corner a market. That's the way I'm looking at it. Do, do you feel like that's the, the correct way of viewing it? Yeah, well, that's the, like we would look at it. But the funny thing is the whole time that I'm doing this, I got the high-frequency trading community is trying to reel me back. And they've got their own narrative. <laughs> and uh, it's really, it's their narrative is kind of interesting. So this one guy who's the president of one of the larger high-frequency trading firms, they're about 4% of the U.S. equity market. And I go out to lunch with this guy, and he tries to explain to me why I shouldn't be a whistleblower and all that. And he says, even if you um, told everybody what we're doing, they wouldn't understand it nothing would change a year later i debated him at a conference after the conference i went over i said you were totally right i told everybody (laughs) 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 you know like literally there's 500 right now there's like 500 pages in the federal register about how all this stuff works and still the people only people who really know it works with high frequency traders so he was right um but the one thing he said to me that I just I kind of laughed at it, but it was at least it helped me understand what they what they were telling themselves. What he said to me was that the the lit markets, the the what we call the lit markets, are like Nasdaq and Nasdaq, are so toxic in the U.S. They're so competitive, and the reason being is at least forty percent of the orders don't actually trade on exchanges, and they go to dark pools or they go to off exchange market makers. So basically, if you trade on an exchange. You're trading against toxic waste. Yeah, what that basically means is if you're buying, you're just going to buy when someone slams a bunch of you know orders into the market that because they've already exhausted all liquidity off exchange and now they're hitting the exchange where it's higher fees and you know you're just trading against what we call you know adverse order flows all day wrong. That's actually true. So he says to me, you know, without all these cheats, you know, we they only make a 20th of a penny per share. I mean, the rebate itself is like five times that, right? You know, so they're basically losing money on, on average and the, and the rebates are just getting just a past break even. So they mm-hmm. said like, if we don't cheat like this, we can't trade. And he goes, um, and look about the, you know, the, the pension and the mutual fund. That when they route that large order to the market, they have an unfair advantage because they know they're going to move the market with their large order. That's what he tells me. And that's what's kind of interesting to me. He basically says that cheating with hide, not slide and order book shuffling and colluding with the exchange and all that is basically all they can do to combat the, the in his mind, the cheating that large institutional 
uh, financial firms do when they stuff large orders into the markets. Mm. He says, if I, if we can't cheat, you know, then we're not going to make money and that would be bad. And I'm thinking to myself, actually, it'd be kind of good if you guys were all out of the market. And I, I do believe that. Actually, <laughs> it's, that, that's funny. That reminds me of like how Buffett says the same thing that he's that he's wary that like you know if they make a purchase they'll move the market quite quite significantly. Oh, they do uh, because they, yeah. they that's all they do is their, their strategy. It it, 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 it it because it trades against adverse order flows. It basically panics out of any risk it takes. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they do exasperate. I mean, flash crashes and all that are basically a property of having a single class of a very brittle, fragile strategy that only can survive with like, I mean, just think about this. Think how illogical this is. This guy's basically telling me that their crappy strategy needs to, to, to have like order matching engine cheats to just mm. barely stay alive. Yeah. Right, it's like it's like playing uh, Zelda on Nintendo as a kid, and then you buy you buy this special book that only a few people know that you can get. This is you know before the dawn of the internet, really, uh, or the the proper internet as we know it. And then you're able to go buy this book, and you can find your cheat codes. It reminds yeah, me exactly like that. It, it is, and so I, I I mean I know the strategy class and in, in detail that they run. I've spoken about it, you know, at length. I've given uh, specifications from high-frequency trading firms uh, to the SEC. And I look at it, and I was like, it's just not a viable strategy. Like, I can't believe that the exchanges piled into this. But mm. there, there's, a, there's a kind of reason why what happened in the early 2000s is the, the banks started launching dark pools, which are basically private exchanges. And those dark pools compete with the um, major exchanges. And the exchanges had to find new market makers, new allies. Mm. And um, the high-frequency traders were, were this class of strategy were basically making a ton of volume and very low margins. And uh, they got in bed with the with the um, you know exchanges, and and when I say they got in bed with it, it's like you know uh, with the, in the case of Bats, the two two high frequency trading firms, um, Getgo and um, uh, Tradebot, are the or they owned I think forty percent of Bats, right? And, and then um, Direct Edge was owned forty uh, percent of Direct Edge was owned by. Um, and there's a limit on how much firms can own. But uh, 40% was owned by uh, Knight Trading and uh, Citadel. Wow. So, so those, of course those became high-frequency trading-friendly venues, right? Of course. Well, th this has got me thinking about something I was chatting to Chris Gore, the, the CEO of Go Markets, about. We're talking about generally what is high-frequency trading today, and it's sort of I'm starting to get a better sense of that. I think most people see this sort of this meme that they see or hear about during flash crashes, or they read your favorite book in Flash Boys. <laughs> I know you, I know you're not a fan of that book. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the the way that we sort of define it amongst the two of us was it's basically using sophisticated algorithms, systems, co-location is always a big part of that, 
and you're looking to arbitrage something which is often time. And I know that he said to me that generally the world of, of high-frequency trading is is taking advantage of inefficiencies. At least that's what he assumes, right? And as technology advances, there are less inefficiencies in his mind, certainly from an anecdotal point of view. I guess I'm curious, how do you see the future of high-frequency trading? Has this the, this order type issue changed the way that you see the industry? Is this why you've gotten into crypto? Well, I mean... Uh, there's a number of reasons I got into crypto, but uh, you know, it's it's uh, crypto is very inefficient. Uh, you you need to have a very uh, these order type uh, processes now. They were never made made illegal, right? I, I thought that's what was going to happen, but it, uh, again, I got scolded by another executive HFT. He's like, he tells me he's like, you don't think they can run this in every exchange for years and then just make it illegal, high? <laughs> Right. You know, like the, the, the industry won there. They got this stuff approved just by rolling it out. And it would be such an incredible embarrassment if the SEC basically had to say any of it was illegal. Right. So in the end, they just forced them to document it all. And now you have to use all this stuff. It doesn't even get you that much of an edge anymore because it's now much more exposed. And then the real bad stuff that was actually pulled out of many of the exchanges. So uh, it's very expensive to, to operate. It's very, very costly. Uh, so it's a very uh, mature industry now in, yeah. in my mind. It's super, like the heydays are gone well and truly. Totally gone, yeah. Uh, I, I like to think that I assisted in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, funny. Uh, yeah. But well, the, the other, other thing, you, you know, you said um, – with, with the, in that conversation you're having with go markets, um, the thing I think that's kind of missed is that these markets do become hyper efficient, which is why high frequency traders colluded with exchanges to create secretive order types and secretive order handling. Exactly. They, they introduced or reintroduced inefficiency back into the market through that means. Because mm, that is what they rely on. Inefficiency and volatility, essentially. Yeah. So I, you know, I try to explain it to people. I say, you know, you, you spend 10 years climbing up the ladder and you finally get in charge of one of these business units, right? You're the head trader. And then the compression kind of you know, comes in there and, and, and you're not making money. Do you just say, oh, I give up? <laughs> I'm going to give my seat to somebody else? Yeah, all, yeah the, all the money you've invested, all the time, your career. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like commitment and consistency principle. The, us humans, we can't deal with it. So we find some sort of cognitive dissonance to save us the mental energy of doing something different. And then we just find a way to continue doing what we're doing. Well, one thing I noticed, a lot of the people I ended who ended up being like architects of these things or involved in the collusion, they were not the kind of innovators who created these businesses. Those guys, you know, had their private islands and all that by then. <laughs> it's like the lieutenant who isn't that creative, who knows yeah. like the one thing that they were doing really, really well. And like that lieutenant isn't going to innovate. And 
yeah, it's like it's literally actually. I mean, I kind of don't have. Uh, I, you can hear it in my tone of my voice. I do not have much respect for the for the people I actually turned in because yeah. they they're not even that good. They just sat around in in a seat and were reliable for a while, and often you know often had no other career experience except the one place they were at. And then they kind of panicked and they're like jumping in, into these uh, collusive kind of schemes seemed to them to be like the right way to fix the problem. Mm. Well, on the point of crypto, I mean, I've, I've worked in this space um, for a little while now with a business called CoinJar. Um, and I, I th- I'm totally fascinated by it. I, I mean, I've obviously, we've had multiple guests on Margin Call talk about crypto in general. I think uh, last I checked, daily volumes are around 20 billion now. It's still very low, but in comparison to what it was a year or so ago, it's still uh, increasing, I guess you could say. It's still quite an inefficient market. I feel like backed futures only just really came on board uh, with the ICE like a month, no, three months ago, maybe. When do you remember first discovering Bitcoin? Well, I was asked about it, you know, All repeatedly, right. repeatedly because of my regulatory kind of focus, you know, way before I kind of screwed around with it. But uh, I don't remember how many years ago it was. Uh, it could be four years ago or something, somewhere around then. I was like, ah, I'll just go and get some. And, you know, I got a little <laughs> bit of Bitcoin and I don't even know where it is anymore. I'm all angry at myself. It's like on some hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of like a VC I had a conversation with. And um, they, in the early days of Bitcoin, like 2011, 2012, they paid for a pizza with Bitcoin. And it's now known as the $10,000 pizza because that's the equivalent value of what that crypto went to. I thought but it was way more than that. I thought it was way more. Well, I, I don't know when they bought it and, and, and when they're basing that time frame on. It would be a lot yeah. more now. But I, I, I do like that hindsight bias, how people just love to look in the rearview mirror. I mean, the reality is they would not have kept that money till that period. They would have sold yeah. it well and truly before then. But I got involved more recently. I mean, we launched our fund, um, was it December? Coming on a year or over a year now. Uh, I'm pretty happy. I mean, launching in December a year ago was a very good time to launch. Uh, we had a long bias. It's kind of a, uh, you know, kind of like a medium term market making kind of strategy. Uh-huh. Uh, so this is, mix- this is Hyperion Decimus, right? This yeah, is the- it's a, yeah. yeah. It's a mix of, um, uh, you know, kind of systematic stuff, but I believe very strongly in the involvement of traders, especially in this, space so you know we do have a kind of gray box discretionary kind of override uh, on the business i mean in in terms of like you know where my mind is um i've spent a lot of time in the last uh, couple of years working on uh, market manipulation cases uh as an expert witness and um wh- what you've basically seen is a lot is quite a number of, of, of groups that we're focusing in manipulating uh, U.S. equities and futures, they've moved into crypto, mm. and you know I just can't help but see the same literally identical shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's like on a daily basis, you know, like for crypto, um, 
yeah, I like to tell people. I, I, I'll show like a 24-hour graph of like, you know, uh, one of these altcoins. And I'll, and I'll be like, look at the volume. And you'll just notice there is nothing going on. I'm like, there's no trade to make for 12 hours because the thing's not moving because there's no volume. Mm. And then you see like this move. And that move, you know, can be very extreme. And it usually involves a ton of shenanigans. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'll just use that. I'm using it as a euphemistic <laughs> word. <laughs> strains, strains love words like shenanigans. It's yeah, a shenanigan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, so I tell me, I say, like, you just have to know what's going on during that move. And you have to be able to interpret the real information from the false information. And that's the game. So, anyway, you know, like, I didn't think it was going to be identifying market manipulation would become my passion in crypto, but it's kind of turned into a passion. Because, you know, this is not a market like in you know u.s equities where people have to buy equities pensions uh you know retirement funds whatever they have to you know, mutual funds have to go in they have to do these transactions there's no natural large transaction kind of volume that like feeds crypto what, what causes crypto to move are traders yeah. some of them are very very big if you want to be a market maker in this space it comes down to mastering those moments when, um, you know, different forces come in and pressure the coin. You know, I'm going to use that word pressure. It all comes down to uh, real pressure, false pressure, uh, in, in terms of book pressure and flow. And, um, you know, it's really, really interesting because if you see it through that lens, you realize it really brings in, like, new types of quantitative trading, right? Like we have lots of um, programs that that people in surveillance use to detect spoofing and layering and that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. I don't think there are many firms out there that use market manipulation detectors to determine when they should not be participating in a market or when uh, a market is dislocated in a way where it, you know you may want to actually take an opposing trade to where it is. I mean, it's really, really, really fascinating to me, and I, I do hope. I mean, the stuff I'm working on—that's just fun. You know, this is a real intellectually stimulating problem. But I do like look at this and kind of wonder. You know, crypto guys don't like market uh, regulation, but I don't think that this market is gonna thrive if this type of um, activity. Is just kind of tolerated. Agreed. Because people leave the market. Maybe not the traders, not people who love crypto, but the public. But when retail. They, get burned, they will leave. They just leave. Yeah. I am in 100% agreement with it. It has to be regulated to be legitimized, in my opinion. It, it, Australia is a very conservative country when it comes to the finance industry and also very progressive when it comes to technology. Because we we skipped the whole crowdfunding, crowdsourcing thing here uh, in Australia because of regulation, and we went straight to crypto. So crypto was very, very early here in Australia, and I think we've seen it working in the industry that it it just has to be regulated for more and more retail consumers to take on board these products. 
I found it interesting on the Hyperion Decimus site, you spoke about how you, you had a quote from a Nobel uh, laureate in economics. Um, I don't know their first name, but the last name is Hayek uh, from the 1974 Nobel mm-hmm. laureate in economics. And you, it speaks about how we have no choice but to replace the current systems we have with sort of a private banks of issues, so to speak. And I guess having your hat on from what's happened in the early days at Hull of of high-frequency trading to where the industry is mature now, what do you see as the potential highlights and lowlights or or positives and issues that could come from cryptocurrency for you? Yeah, well, one thing is that um, when you're in this space, right, it, 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 there is a kind of kind of political angle, you know, it, it kind of, a, a, so when I first got in, I, I, I had to, to look at that and, 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 and try to figure out my own views. And I, I did really like and agree with the direction that Hayek took in that it is worthwhile and exploring uh, in, in a competitive environment, basically, you know, privately issued currencies. And it is a real threat to the established uh, financial system. Okay, so that, you know, that that's kind of like where I started. But the, I think the second thing in terms of crypto that really just floored me, I wasn't really ready for it, was basically how brittle the banking system is. Mm. Uh, moving money between uh, the banks... Uh, which are, you know, a- any crypto firm that's doing a lot of vo- volume is going to to need to move money around. And I'm thinking when I get into this business, it's going to be no different than would occur in in, uh, in in the traditional financial markets that we operate in. And um, what you realize is that behind the scenes at these banks, things are not automated. There is a ton of manual processing and and it's extremely costly so i think one of the first moments you know i didn't really come into this being like banks are evil we need to bypass the banks but we found out like wow we need to bypass the banks to even make the business work because banks can't process money yeah they can't process (laughs) currency efficiently (laughs) i was like what is a bank for if it can't do that it's yeah. so confusing, you know? So, and I don't think most people would see that because it has to do with like the, you know, most people are not putting high numbers of, of, of volume of like, you know, wire transfers and deposits and all that through the, through the banking system. Uh, so we're like, wow, uh, we have to move to stable coin to, to even do that, you know, to like know. move. It's crazy. So there's all these things that you learn as you go through it. And, you know, I'm not, um, I don't see myself as like, a super advocate, but uh, in in the in in the way like these crypto, you know, the you know I don't, I'm not like the, I'm, I'm not like a, a cult member of this, but <laughs> I'm I but I realize in my experience, and I, I I like being late to the game with this one for for some reason. I, you know, it's really fun watching, seeing how other people have interpreted stuff, seeing how this whole industry evolved. But I guess in many ways. Even our fund is like now considered; it could be considered an old timer fund because so many have closed down. I don't even know. <laughs> so I, I'm starting to figure out if I'm late, earlier, just on time. So I think that the thing to realize is that crypto is absolutely here to stay. 
Bitcoin's yeah. over 10 years old. You know, how many startups are, are 10 years old? Mm. It's so thoroughly here to stay. And that not going along the journey with it while operating in finance just seems to me to be like a major missed opportunity. Like, you know, I, I, I was in the, I had a ton of friends in the nineties who were part of the whole dot com thing. And I just didn't go along with that path. I don't regret it, but I thought, you know, I thought about it later. I was like, wow, I was in the center of it. And I just decided to go into quantitative finance instead. Yeah. Uh, but now I feel like crypto is like basically the the biggest thing that's happened in my career in finance. So, of course, I'm going to be in it. Yeah, I agree. And I think I agree with all the points you make. I think that it, it is a new way or a new method of doing things. And that's the biggest. Uh, that was the biggest aha for me. Um, I'm looking at time and realizing we're about to run out of it. So I want to quickly ask you some rapid fire High frequency questions, I guess you could say. Um, so, quick, short answers. Uh, what is your best purchase under two hundred dollars? I wasn't ready for that question. Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wasn't a headphone like, jack, was it? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Uh, I guess I bought Bitcoin under when I was around sixty bucks or whatever, but it's on some hard drive in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's so good. All right. Uh, if you had to gift a book to the audience, we just had Christmas past. Uh, so it's, I've been asking people, what would they gift as a book for the holiday period? Uh, what would you have chosen for the audience? Well, um, I have a side of me that's more philosophical and, you know, I would probably not give the audience the, the most, the, the joyful Christmas gift. But since you're giving me a, a book plug, it's not going to be finance. Uh, it would be uh, Escape from Evil by um, Ernest Becker, uh, I think 1974. Uh, and that book is really uh, just, uh, to me, it was just like perspective changing view into why people do bad things to others. And it just, mm-hmm. you know, just, just a completely illuminating book. Uh, and, and he wrote that on his deathbed, Escape from Evil. His other major book is uh, Denial of Death, which was posthumously awarded the Pulitzer. There you go. All right, last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in New York, where would it be and what would you put on it? God, I hate these questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I would put it in Grand Central Station, and I'd just probably be sappy and say, don't forget your children. Okay, I like that don't, one. Don't forget your kids. Um, hi, where can people find you on the interweb, interweb so to speak? <laughs> All right, uh, in the Matrix, uh, hiambodak.com. I'm pretty easy to, to find. Uh if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I don't tweet as much, but if I have any news, and often I do, I will tweet that news. It'll be the first place you'll see it. Okay. And I have an Instagram account which with very few followers. I'd like to see that get up. Um, all <laughs> high Bodek. Yeah. And the other things you should know about me if you want to get – if you're interested in the stories here, and I think some of it, you know, 
it should be interesting to people. Um, there's a book, Dark Pools, which tells uh, the beginning of my story in terms of uh, whistleblowing. I get I'm about 25% of that book in terms of the, the narrative. There's also an amazing narrative about um, the Josh Levine, who is the uh, innovator who basically caused markets in the U.S. to be electronic. So Dark Pools, uh, heavily, highly recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wall Street Code by um, uh, Maria Meerman uh, is a Dutch documentary funded by the government um, that tells my story of, of the whistleblowing. Uh, I'm also in, I think, four or five other documentaries. Uh, you can kind of look on IMDb for some of those if you're curious about some of the other documentaries I'm in. Yeah, it's. Um, I actually found that. It, it had the list of all the docos, and I've got to say that Dutch documentary was very informative, very, very useful. And I think um, for people who are listening, I would strongly recommend going and watch that going to watch that after this so we'll, we'll make sure we include the links for that as well yeah there's actually two um there were actually two separate a european version a u.s version because the film sc- score uh, had uh, the music had different costs or something like that <laughs> of so, it did. so between the two it's actually had i think one and a half million views so wow. uh, most people know me through that uh and then if you're interested in geekdom I have two books that I've written. The one people like the most is The Problem of HFT, which is also heavily cited in that City of Providence class action against all the exchanges. Uh, that is uh, talks you know, specifically about the, the details of the order type uh, issues I talked about on this, on this uh, podcast. And the other one that we wrote was, I uh, co-wrote that with my colleague, Stanislav Dogopolov is the market structure crisis, which is really a summary of, of, of all of the major uh, regulatory um, kind of enforcement or issues and enforcement actions with regard to um, electronic markets. And we, we, because there were so many that happened after I became a whistleblower, there was really a, a shift in the way regulators looked at markets in the U.S. And they did all of these interesting electronic trading cases. And we, doc, we, did, we decided to document them all in, the, in this book. And uh, I, I got to say for, for those listening in Australia, so we've got a mainly an Australian U.S. audience, uh, Amazon Prime, Everyone should know that you can get it now here in Australia. And I've ordered, um, I did order uh, the market structure crisis, but uh, the problem of HFT actually came very quickly. Um, So they obviously have some stock here in Australia and they're not importing it directly from uh, America. So you can get those pretty quickly. And I've, I've had a read of that. I'd suggest people check that out, particularly a lot of the traders that are listening to this. It's a good book. So look, Haim. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on and uh, all the very best. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.